Welcome to the Lazy Pod Podcast. It's the Lazy Pod Podcast where we recap every single episode. We'll go behind the scenes and talk about how the series began and interview cast and crew members to find out what they're up to now. This is the 20th anniversary of the first broadcast of Lazy Town, so let's celebrate Sporticus, Stephanie, Robbie Rotten, and all their friends from Lazy Town. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Lazy Pod Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lazy Pod Podcast, where we explore, dissect, reminisce, and generally just enjoy all things Lazy Town. Today, I am honored to have joining me one of the premier directors in the entertainment industry today, a man who guided nearly a dozen episodes of Lazy Town to glory, Mr. Jonathan Judge. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah, I was uh, in in preparation for this. I was looking at some of your most recent directorial efforts. It's like reading a who's who and what's what of current television. Bunky Brewster, Mr. Iglesias, <laughs> Prince of Peoria, Young Sheldon, Life in Pieces. You're the reason they invented the phrase, the list goes on and on, I think. <laughs> it's incredible. You. Yeah, it's a... You do it and you don't think about it. And then you look back and you go, wow, I've been very lucky to be on a lot of different shows with a lot of different incredible creative people. How, how do you, how are you able to segue from an action story to family comedy to musical? What is it that prepared you for that kind of range? I mean, did you read a lot as a kid? Was it all just television? You know, like. It wasn't a lot of television for me. I'm the youngest of seven, and we were allowed one hour of television a week. Um, but, however, I was always wandering through the living room when my brother, older brothers and sisters were watching other TV, and I just soaked it up like a sponge. But I was a voracious reader. Like I was telling someone the other day, my parents used to punish me by not letting me read. So I was third grade, I read Lord of the Flies because it was, you know, my brother had left it somewhere. So I was reading everything, probably a lot of stuff I shouldn't have read and just fell in love with storytelling. And that's, in our industry, they always want to pigeonhole you. You're a kids director, or you're a music director, or you're an action director, a comedy director. And I've never looked at it that way. I look at every story as like, hey, how do I approach this? How do I tell it? So I love the I love jumping from something like The Cool Kids, which is working with these legend comedy older actors. And then I love doing interactive stuff, which I've been doing a lot lately in the Unreal Engine, um, which, well, I don't want to jump ahead. But I learned that what we were doing on Lazy Town, I recently did a project with Epic and Unreal, mm -hmm. live rendered. Uh, animated sitcom and it was all the technology we were using on lazy town and when i told them i worked on lazy town the president of epic was like oh lazy town yeah and i had no clue what we were doing i knew it was cool but i did not know what we were doing was so far ahead of what i'm doing similar things now that we did almost 20 years ago in iceland that that's impressive. I, I do remember the rendering took twenty four hours sometimes to pull everything together, so that was kind of a drag. But they were definitely ahead of the curve with the tech, for sure. Uh, you've also become adept at handling big musical sequences. I've seen uh, so many of these. It's like in my imagination, it's it's like herding cats on the deck of a cruise ship in the middle of a, a tornado or something. I mean. Uh, how do you do work with a choreographer for these things? They, they all seem very well organized and they come off perfectly, but they can't be 
uh, easy to shoot. I love doing musical numbers. Um, I love doing big choreographed pieces and always with a choreographer. It's funny. My wife and I took um, ballroom dancing for our wedding and we love ballroom dancing and I'm not a good dancer. And at one point uh, I said to the, to our instructor, I was like, would you believe that I've done over a hundred music videos with some of the top choreographers in the business? And she like snorted like, Haha. I was like, no, seriously. <laughs> really good at directing dancers and uh yeah but i've gosh i've worked with the guy who did the single ladies videos um i wow. did Ma uh, mandy moore and i did uh fresh beat band together and now you know she went on to uh not only do dancing with the stars but uh what is the hollywood movie with uh oh my god the big uh La La Land. Oh, yeah. She's a choreographer of La La Land. Wow. So I've been able to work with these incredible choreographers and it's kind of like action sequences, you know, which we did a lot of on Lazy Town, which is what do you want to have happen? Break it down into the pieces, work with a, either a stunt choreographer or a, a dance choreographer that is also a storyteller. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how do you tell the story with the cameras? But I, with everything, you just got to break it down into those little tiny pieces. A patient man, did you say? I'm sorry, you broke up. Is, is patience a virtue in a director? Because I would think, I, I've never done it. It just seems like one of the most difficult aspects is, is waiting for everyone else and everything else to be ready so you can call action. That's actually interesting. I, uh, I, I am told often that I'm an incredibly patient person, especially with and young actors and then my wife you know snorts and goes like, <laughs> like you must use it all up on set <laughs> uh because you have no patience for us at home um i i would say i am a patient person on on set it's such a collaboration that once you work enough i think i was I think I was less patient early on because I didn't understand the process fully. And the more I have learned what a director of photography does, grip has to do when I say, hey, I want that actor to stand there. And all of a sudden the gaffer and the grip have to move a light. The grip has to move the stand. As I've learned that over 25 years, um, I think I've become more patient. I also have gotten really good at seeing the whole picture where I think on cruise sets everybody is assigned their own little tunnel vision like mm -hmm. i'm going to worry about the lights i'm going to worry about this sometimes they don't picture and what i think i've gotten really good at is when they go well that's going to take 20 minutes or we can't do that i was like no you can just do that or i'll turn him around and if you bring that camera over there this should work and i've gotten to a point where i think people look at me and go oh you know because i i've seen that process enough and i've tried to understand everybody's process enough that it makes me a better filmmaker and a little more patient, but also at a place where I can push it. Cause I do a lot of kids stuff. I do a lot of ambitious stuff and you time is, is our biggest enemy, you know, mm -hmm. especially with kids movies. So at moments I can say, no, we have to do this. We have to take that. Here's how we're going to do this. And you see people go, Oh, all right, do what he said, you know? So I've seen you working under difficult conditions in Iceland on Lazy Town and days when we didn't have full scripts prepared and days when technical glitches slowed down productions. But you always seem to maintain your equilibrium, kind of like the dad of the production. Do you, is that how it felt to you personally? Uh, 
and not while I was in, I think now I definitely feel like a dad in production. I think when I was in Iceland, um, I had done a lot by that point, but I hadn't done lazy town was, and still is one of the hardest shows I've ever shot. And it was such a great training ground in so many ways from technology, from production, from interpersonal relationships, um, to dealing with personalities as we know, um, uh, and also bringing a lot of pieces together in a very hard way. But I would say like, uh, was it Hannes? Who was a uh, who was the dad of Lazy Town? The guy who was the stage manager. Yes, um, Hannes. Great, great. Hannes, guy. great guy. It, it, like when you're when you're next to a person like that who is so calm, no matter what, uh, it's hard to think you're the dad. Um, I think on productions, I do kind of. I guess I am kind of the dad of the production. Uh, the dad or the mom, because moms are the ones who kind of make things all work and happen, right? So I think probably more the mom of the set, you know, but with a little less, probably because I don't have as, I'm very hard on myself and I'm hard on people on set. I'm very appreciative of when people do things and, and what they do, but I'm also very demanding. Um, and I've been told that I'm, I'm hard but firm, uh, mm -hmm. fair. You know, I'm hard on people, but I'm also very fair. I'm demanding it of them and of me and people like that. You know, I know what I want and I know what I want people to do. Um, so I guess that is kind of a dad trait, you know. It, it doesn't translate as well home when you, as my wife would say, you're using your director's voice or we're, we're not your actors, you know, where you're talking to your kids that way. So it's hard to turn that off. It's nice to... It's nice to be on a set where 100 to 150 people like listen to what you say and then want to do it or at least act <laughs> like they want to do it <laughs> and I, then come home and be like, hey, why don't we do this? No, you know, and you're like, oh, OK. I found that to be true, too, when I would come back from uh, Iceland home and, and you're used to saying uh, I need a cannon by Thursday. <laughs> you know, can you make me a cannon? And then uh, how come you can't do this uh, macaroni artwork by by two weeks from now, you know, <laughs> do you, did you perceive lazy town as a show about a superhero, a show about a girl and her friends or a show about a strange, but somehow fascinating little town? <laughs> uh, I, all of the above. Um, I, I never perceived it to be about a superhero. Um, I always perceived it to be about Stephanie. Uh, it was a, it was a, a girl and and her friends in adventures and Sporticus and Robbie were kind of the secondary characters that complicated their lives and helped them. So to me, it was more a Goonies um, with a Sporticus, you know, rather than uh, um, a superhero show that uh, existed. But that's how I always I always identified with Stephanie. I, uh, Sporticus was the outside, not outsider, because obviously he was so much a part of that world, but Sporticus was um, um, the adult figure who would come in and, and help, but he was always encouraging them to do it themselves too, you know? Right, yeah, and it wasn't really until the show had been on for a couple of months we started getting market research notes back from uh, the network suggesting that this or that should be emphasized, but for me it was always 
uh, it was about Stephanie coming to town and her friends and their little things. So that to me, that was the sweet spot of the show. I, that was my favorite part. For sure. I mean, even the opening title sequence, it's her with that suitcase, putting it down, right? You know, and looking around and getting introduced. So yeah, that to me was definitely the hijinks they got into. Of course, you always had an incredible opening with Sportacus and you know there was going to be this incredible save. Um, and and I also think Robbie Rodden, just, you know, Stefan just created a iconic character that... Mm -hmm. uh, um, you wanted to see him. Um, uh, but yeah, it was always about Stephanie and, and Stephanie and Ziggy for the most part for me, it was kind of their friendship. Uh, Stingy had his, you know, own selfish reasons and storylines and, uh, Pixel, uh, well, is his name Pixel? Oh my God, I blanked. Yeah. Pixel. <laughs> wow. I haven't said Pixel in so long. Um, you know, and Pixel, Pixel was there to help, you know, he was almost the, if you look at it as like a CSI, right? You know, there's the quirky guy, Stingy, you know, who uh, begrudgingly is part of the group. And then you have your high tech, you know, person who's like in the office, Pixel, but it was Ziggy and Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've, we've been talking to a lot of people who worked on the show. And one of the common themes is that it was like going to a war in a way amongst, I'm just talking about cast and crew even though there was no one shooting at us uh, or maybe metaphorically there was, but there was a sense of genuine camaraderie among people who worked on the show. And we all walked away with lifelong memories. Of course, the unforgettable Robbie Rotten, you know, he was, he became a very good friend and everything that he went through, you know, post lazy town. And, and uh, it's funny because we talk about those long hours and those endless weeks of shooting. Well, one of the shows you directed was Miss Roberta, and we didn't have mm -hmm. a script until I, somehow there was a hole in the schedule, and somehow we found ourselves heading up toward Monday morning, and we didn't have a script. So, And we I, needed to do a three-day episode. That was the one where right. uh, Raymond and, and Inger and everybody's like, we need to do a three-day episode. How do we do a three-day episode? I remember it being... Uh, like you had the idea and it being me and you and figuring out what we could shoot, how we could use the cake song, you know, so we didn't have to reshoot that and how we could back our way into a lot of stuff we had already shot so that we could pull off an episode in three days. And to this day, I still think it's the only, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't on the, the, the following seasons after, you know, the 2004, 2006, but I think it's the only one we shot that quickly. It absolutely was there. Uh, there was nothing that existed even up until midnight Sunday. And, but we got together on Saturday and talked about, okay, what do we have? What do we need? And then it was just lickety split. And I had to ask, I went to Stefan's house and said, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? We worked it all out brought the script in just at about eight o'clock on Monday morning. Thora made copies for the entire cast and crew and you took off and started directing this thing. And in three days we had what is to me, one of my favorite episodes. It is, it is a lot of fun. And that was, I mean, I remember doing so much collaboration with you and with Mark at the time 
of like, how do we take Magnus's vision and how do we take the pieces we had? Um, and it was like almost an old studio system because we knew like the, the, the warehouse was our studio, right? We knew what we had. We knew props. We'd walk around and look at set pieces, right? We'd look at the stunt footage and say, okay, how do we piece these things together in something that was um, cool? And that was really fun um, and collaborative. And I loved working that way. Like I've, I've been in Directors Guild uh, um, creative rights meetings where I hear the, the directors complain, like we get scripts late and, and, and that's horrible and it doesn't allow me to do what I do. And I was like, actually, it's very freeing because no one can say to you, why aren't you prepared? Right? You're like, because you gave me a script at eight o'clock in the morning. So now I'm going to do what I do. Uh, and it, and just like war, it was like boot camp. It was like, how do you think on your feet? How do you make, you know, and there were so many possibilities with Lazy Town, but also so many limitations. Mm. Your, half your actors, more than half your actors don't have legs. Um, you know, either, you know, and, and it was a show about throwing, catching, jumping, being active. So how? How did you do that? And were our sets up or were we on the ground and were they on rollies? And every piece of the puzzle used all your uh, kind of skills to make that happen. But that was fun. Roberta was a lot of fun. And and Stefan was so damn funny in that one, you know? Um, my favorites, a couple of my favorites, the, the Secret Agent uh, Zero. Yes. Uh, that was a great one. Um and the school one, when Robbie was uh, the teacher, I think, did we bring Miss Roberta back as the teacher in that one? Or was I he a different Semi, semi, we brought her back. I remember it was, uh, and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and those beautiful sets and that whole, you know, the elaborate Rube Goldberg, you know, saves that were in, uh, oh, in Magnus's head that we had to make um, go. It's funny, you you mentioned that, like, I look at my IMDb and it says, like, I, I directed 12 episodes, but I think, one, I, I, I think I directed almost half of the original, what was it, the original, was it 35. 30? What was the, 25 was the original order? 35, that year we did 35. 35. Yeah, because I came in on episode 19, because I had been asked to produce it. Uh, early on by Magnus, I didn't, I was like, Oh God, this is a show that I don't want to produce, but I want to direct. And I just kept pushing and pushing for that. And I, I arrived and I had the production original production schedule and I arrived and you were supposed to be finishing 35 or 50, maybe whatever it was, you're supposed to be finishing it. And it was episode 19 <laughs> on the day I arrived uh, in August of 2004. And I was like, Whoa. Um, I think toward the end of that year, we did uh, 62 days straight. Yes. Seven days a week, 12, 15-hour days, uh, because we had to finish by December 22nd. And uh, it was... Yeah, it we was had not- to get out of there. Yeah, you're right. We had to get out of there. Um, I'll always remember like the 72-degree day, which was like, what, 21 degrees Celsius, where yeah. the crew just said, we're not working today. Uh, they are like, it's going to rain, it's going to snow, and we will work all you want after this. But today, tomorrow, we're all going to be off because it never gets to be 72 degrees in Iceland. And then the day after that, the entire country was sunburned. 
<laughs> right. And the, the smallest even sliver of sunlight coming down, like I'm going outside. Yep. Get that. And then we, and then, yeah, we did. We went and they, and what a hardworking crew, you know, and it was just, cause it was by that point, you know, November, December, it's dark all the time. So no one cares. Let's work. Let's be inside. So you'd be inside and brightly lit lazy town, you know, where the sun was always at one o'clock in the afternoon um and then you'd go outside and it would be 11 in the morning but it would be pitch black like it was midnight um that was fun well you certainly uh you gave us all a lot of confidence when you came because you knew what you were doing you were uh obviously somebody who knew how to take charge and and a friendly guy but must have been a little shell shocking to arrive in Iceland and say, here's where you're going to live. Here's how you, what you're going to drive. Here's where you're going to go to work. Oh, and by the way, uh, Iceland is similar to the U S in many ways, but it was, it was a lot different too. It, it was. And I love that. <clears throat> it was a great time. You know, I love Iceland. I've been back twice. I, I want to take the boys now. And, and we thought about going, when they did the new, whatever, I think it was called the third season, like they called and I seriously considered. And then the boys, I have twin boys that are nine years old. I realized that they were like eight months old. And even though I love Iceland and Chris loved Iceland, I realized when you went over to Iceland and you know this better than anybody, you weren't working eight hour days and then going to cafes and traveling the country. They owned you. You know, you were there just to work on the show. And they I was, always knew where to find you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'd get calls at four in the morning. Magnus worked late with Mark and he's sleeping in. You're directing tomorrow, you know. Um, and uh, there's a funny story about that. If you want to hear it about how I got the BAFTA with, with Magnus. But um, <clears throat> when I landed, uh, my call to Magnus, he was like, everybody says, Brown says I should have you as a director. Everybody says you're a director. No one can direct this show. There's been three great directors here. They can't do it. No one can do this. <clears throat> Why don't you come over and do a two-week test? And, you know, you'll just watch for a week. And then maybe I'll let you direct a little bit. And we'll see if you can do Lazy Town. And I landed... Um, I had no no phone, no idea. Eventually, someone came and picked me up at uh, at my apartment, and I arrived. And Magnus wasn't there; he was, you know, traveling somewhere. Um, and I sat down with Raymond, met you, and we talked a little bit. And then he showed up, and it, we were doing we were doing airship stuff with the bungee cord. It was the first day, and he just walked up and was like, "Hey, how are you? Okay." Um, I have to be up there. Go ahead. And that I started directing. And I remember the first Icelandic I learned was Hanka Linky <laughs> because he was hanging upside down and his face was turning purple. And I just kept hearing Hanka Linky, Hanka Linky, Magnus, Hanka Linky, Maggie, Hanka Linky, Hanka Linky. And I was like, does Hanka Linky mean hanging upside down? <laughs> and they were like, yeah. And, they, and he doesn't want to hang upside down too long. And they were like, yes. So I, I did that the, the first day. Then the next day, and then I directed for two weeks straight, and they didn't want to let me leave. Uh, and I was like, "Well, this, I, I, I'm sorry, I have to go home. I have to like, get, you know, board up my apartment." They were like, "No, you're staying. You're here." And I was like, well, "I got to go home for a week." And so I went home for a week, and then I came back. You were also doing the pirates that um, 
Oh yeah, right. That I was there um, in August. Yeah, that's for sure. You are a pirate, you know, with the special uh, green screen suits we had gotten with the glass in them and all that. So my family was actually visiting at the same time. We've got a lot of really fun pictures on that set. And we went fishing uh, with Stefan. Remember that? Yeah, oh, crazy. We catching like seven cod at a time because we took the boat out and went right next to a salmon uh, farm. <laughs> and all the cod were around. And we were just, I remember dropping the hook and hearing do, 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 and catching fish by the side, by the tail. Like they were just running into our hooks. Oh, he loved to go fishing. His dad was a, a fisherman. They, they used to bring in whales. And when he was a kid, he used to sleep on them in the summer because it was well. He said, "My dad was a whale killer." Yeah, <laughs> that's what the, the language was great. I was like, "What did your father do?" Oh, he was a whale killer. <laughs> <laughs> and in Iceland, if you become known for something, like there was a guy who was drunk and he drove off the side of the road. So after that, he was known as Sven Drunk Driver. You yeah. know, you would get tagged for this stuff for life. You one sheep. Right, the whole joke. You. What about the uh, the BAFTA awards that you you picked up? Okay, so Magnus, as you know, you were always having meetings with Magnus in massage, in a sauna, in you know he was always multitasking, always doing any everything. Um, he would. There was an episode where Robbie bring back all his inventions, right, and he's going to yeah. try everything. Um, and. I got a call. It was one of those calls where I think it was 5.30 on a Saturday morning. Um, Magnus was up planning the next script. Um, he was out golfing. I think it was golfing because it was, you know, you could golf 24-7, right? Yeah. Um, he, he golfed too late. He's tired. Um, you're going to direct today. Because um, the Saturdays were our Robbie days, right? We shot yes. six days a week and we would shoot in the lair because it was just him didn't involve any of the kids. Um, uh, so <clears throat> I went and Magnus just uh, didn't want to deal with the technical aspect of it. And what it involved was every single one from the bulldozer, the pirate ship, uh, every one of his contraptions needed to appear. And yes. the way Ma we wanted them to appear is they would boom and land. So what it involved was probably for like a 30 to one minute long sequence and involved me bringing each prop out <clears throat> placing it. You had to visualize the whole wide shot. It was a lock off and placing it, then them turning it 15 degrees on its access so that we could spin it. So th I think it was 30 props. Some of them as big as the bulldozer, which was the size of a bulldozer, the cannon, and I just directed that and talked about like just breaking it down into its pieces and just like everything, you know, the camera couldn't move. So it was a whole Saturday of that. And then Stefan, Robbie moving between all of them and going, yeah, and, and in the end, it's a great secret. So um, on the show, Magnus, he, he saw everything. He obviously has tons of credits on it, um, you know, from puppet design to production design to everything. Yeah. And um, he would sometimes shows that I had done most of the directing. He We would have shared directing credits on. This one came up and because I had done that, that one day of Saturday, it really was – he and I just stepped in and out with each other all the yeah. time because it was just kind of one voice. But this one, my credit got put on this episode um, of an episode that wasn't officially one of mine. 
and that was the one that was submitted for the BAFTA. And I won a BAFTA with Magnus and Raymond uh, for that. And I always laughed. It was like getting up at in the morning on a Saturday when you wanted to sleep in and doing this very tedious thing. But if it was one of the other episodes that was submitted, I might not have a BAFTA right now. Yeah, I mean, that's it's an incredible thing. You, I think you earned it, uh, that episode and every other one you, that you, you directed. But you had a genuine Hollywood Cinderella moment when you won the Directors Guild Award. Uh, oh, yeah. That's a big deal. Uh, what about the moment you found out about that? What was going through your mind? Was that like, a, wow, my 10-year-old self just had like the best moment ever? I had a lot. I've been lucky that I've had a lot of those, wow, five-year-old me, eight-year-old me, 10-year-old me. Um, they, it's, it's funny. When, that, uh, when they said Jonathan Judge, and it was for um, 100 Things to Do Before High School, when they said that, it was just clear clarity. And as you walk up there, and I think Spielberg was in the audience, Wes Anderson, um, you know, Clint Eastwood, because they're all there getting, you know, you're, I was nominated in the children's category, uh, but they're all there getting their, you know, awards for that year. And you go up and look out at a thousand people who are all your peers. Um, it definitely was, uh, an incredible moment. Uh, I, I always feel like an imposter. I'm always waiting for the tap on the shoulder and go, okay, uh, you've had fun. Get out of the thing. That, that's everybody whose last name isn't Fonda or, you know, just, that's just everybody. Yeah. So to get up there and, and, and get that recognition, but I also, um, I don't remember my speech exactly, but I remember a couple people coming up to me, including Jeff Garland from, uh, um, you know, curb your enthusiasm and yeah. uh, the Goldbergs. And he was out. We both were going to the bathroom and we met. And he's like, I like that you got up there and were unapologetic about being uh, in kids television. You know, he's like some of the most interesting and fun stuff I've done has have been in kids television. And I wasn't like kids television rocks. I was just like, I am here because of all the things I watched as a kid that excited me uh, to be in movies and, and, we do the hardest stuff with the least amount of resources. Um, the most interesting stuff I've done, and I've done adult and kids, is kid stuff. You're doing much more challenging, fun, creative stuff than a lot of the adult stuff you do. Um, you know, I haven't been able to do Game of Thrones and, and you know, big things like that. But um, it's a ton of fun, and it's also – it's it's still just storytelling. Um, and it's even harder to tell a story when you have a kid that you can only have for eight hours, when you have puppets that don't have legs, but need to walk into a room when you need to have 30 machines appear. And it involves 15 burly Icelandic men spinning them 15 degrees at a time, you know, over a course of 12 hours. Like that is much more challenging than walking onto a set where you have all the money in the world and also actors who are fully prepared and, and, you know, uh, bringing their own ideas to it. So I feel very blessed that I've got to do a lot of kids TV. Um, I had another moment where five-year-old me was, I got to reboot Sigmund and the Sea Monsters with Marty, Sid and Marty Croft. And that was my favorite show as a five-year-old. So Amazing. that was incredible. And he is still in his eighties, Marty, and still very involved. And it was my birthday and we were shooting at Mount. Malibu, sun is rising, the only two people on the 
Beach or me and Marty. Marty shows up before call because he still loves, you know, filmmaking. And he goes, I heard it's your birthday. And I'm like, yeah. And he starts singing a little like Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> foot from my face. Happy birthday to you. And I'm laughing. And then he's going to sing the whole song. So me and, and Marty Croft, as the sun rises over Leo Creo Beach in Malibu, he sang it to happy birthday, dear Jonathan. Happy birthday to you. And the whole time, I'm often, I think you probably too, were able to be in the moment, but also outside the moment, <clears throat> which is yeah. why we can tell stories. Like I was picturing the camera that was shooting that, you know, while I was also enjoying the fact that the guy who created some of the my favorite shows um, of the 70s was sitting there singing happy birthday to me. So That's a great story. What's so great about it too is that you are now giving thousands or maybe even millions of kids you know, the same, something to dream about that that's one of the best things about showbiz to me. Uh, of course it has prima donnas and horrible executives and shady accounting. And, but at its core, we are presenting entertainment that moves people and gives them a laugh and, you know, memories. I write these uh, Christmas TV movies and of course they're all over the place and they're all predictable and, and uh, people mock them relentlessly. But the thing I remember being a kid watching Christmas movies and specials and things, and I have the fondest memories of those. And, you know, maybe we're giving some new kids the same kind of feeling. I, I, I think so. I think I, I just the last movie I did, which will premiere this Christmas, is a, a loud Christmas. And we did Christmas stuff and I've done other Christmas stuff. But this was a chance to do. Like, we were like, we want this to be like a home alone, but with this animated family brought in the live action, the loud family is a, a popular yeah. show on Nickelodeon. So cool. A boy with 10 sisters. And I was, it was a very hard shoot. Uh, one of the hardest I've been on. It was shooting in Atlanta in May to be Michigan at Christmas. You know, it was um, kids in, you know, snowsuits sweating in 90 degree heat, you know, with green trees behind them. But, I was like, I want to make the Christmas movie that I want to watch every year or that got, got gets into your head and you remember that line, you know? Um, so we're, I feel very blessed to do what I do. We get to tell stories and we get to have people watch it. Um, and um, I also am very happy that I get to, you know, corrupt kids' minds too, you know? And, and, and <laughs> of course. My, my corruptive just like show weird comedy or <clears throat> quirky things or homage homage old comedy routines that they might never see but you can have Stefan Carl do you know and they've seen that and then it, it perpetuates that you know tradition so we've gotten into a lot of uh, a lot of kids heads and a lot of people's heads too but especially kids from Blues Clues to Lazy Town to Fresh Beat Band you know I've been very lucky to be on a bunch of shows that I I, uh, I'm teaching a course, my wife and I teach at the University of Dayton now, and the age of those kids are big time Rush fans. So they are just like, big time Rush, Naked Brothers band, you know, that, and things that I, I've been lucky to be involved with a lot of things I'm very proud of, most things I'm very proud of that I've been involved with, but you never know how much it's going to resonate with uh, an audience until you find out that, oh my gosh, these kids can quote every line <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, yeah. From something well, you did. Speaking of uh, the recent release of the 25th anniversary video with Steve Burns from Blues Clues, uh, was it touched a nerve with people now? You know, millions of people are passing the Kleenex and billions. It got more um, more interactions than any other thing Viacom has ever put out. It beat the Kardashians' birth announcement. Like people really, yeah, it resonated, and it was great. Steve is a good friend of mine. Steve visited us in Iceland. I have a yes. photo of him, him and uh, and Magnus. Um, <clears throat> two titans of like preschool television. Right. Um, but yeah, especially preschool, we really, you know, from Mr. Rogers, Captain Kangaroo, you know, the howdy duty show, those shows are some of our first impressions, you know, in our mind and they resonate, um, and they stay with you. And that I feel is a privilege to have done so much preschool television. And, 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 and I get to do the, you know, the, the 300 for preschoolers, which is what I call lazy town, you know, like I get to do the things that are kind of big and over the top, you know, it's not Barney, not that there's anything wrong with Barney, but you know, we were doing action movies. We were doing, yeah. you know, um, very hard, big things. Like I still on my reel have, um, the lazy town episode where she's going to leave and she, for the dance instructor and she gets on the plane and, and the, you know, eight, Secret Agent Zero, those are shot for shot as good, if not better than movies and, and uh, television that's out there now, you know, and we had to break it into the pieces, you know, you, you could write something, but then how with the, the limitations we had, how do you show the mayor's feet stepping on a trap door, you know, uh, you break it down into its pieces, right? You put Julie in you know shoes and and pants and you shoot those close-ups you know um i remember them when we started putting the masks the puppet heads on them full bodied wise and they couldn't see and we would go walk left now turn and just so we could have head-to-toe shots of uh, the mayor or you know the actors in it um my biggest regret one of my biggest regrets is that we didn't have video assist so that we weren't able to capture some of these these uh, crazy moments the blooper reels that we we just yeah. We never did that because there were so many great moments that would have been, I think, very entertaining for the fans. We we should have recorded that. We were so maxed out. I remember one day, well, when I first went there and I did my first like real shot, which involved everything, and everybody stopped. And first of all, they all watched playback. And then they all turned and said, do we erase it or do we keep it? And I was like, no, no, there were like, because that, that, um, the pipeline had so much data in it. The they were running out of room and they were making decisions about, and I was like, no, they, that piece I'm going to use and that piece, it doesn't have to be a perfect take all the way through. And then the other thing I said is no one else needs to watch feedback except me, you know, you, if you're on set, Magnus, and maybe a puppeteer if their head was popping in. Everybody else needs to reset. And I was like, this is one of the things I'm going to bring that's going to help move this a lot faster because the entire production stopped and would watch a two-minute take and then talk about it. And then there was one day where I arrived and Raymond said, you have to shoot 10 pages today. And for those who, on a single-camera show, you shoot 
five is a, is a pretty good day. Seven is like, okay, if it's a lot of dialogue, like me and you talking and we're just going to cover it in overs. Ten in an action show is hard, but that's about 10 minutes of footage. And then I said, okay, we'll do it. And then Raymond said, but you only have 11 minutes of storage on the drives. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's not going to happen. That, that math does not work. Like I'm not going to, sh- it's not a um, real time one for one thing. Like if you shoot 10 minutes, even if you're being, um, very conscientious you're shooting about 30 minutes of footage but more likely you're shooting about 40 minutes of footage so we were always getting those those things hurled at us in lazy town you need to do this impossible okay with this other impossible thing oh (laughs) yeah i counted it up the first uh two years i was there i flew home i made 50 trips back and forth because I had little kids at the time and there was always that thing about, wait, you're leaving. Like that. Yes. I told you I was leaving two weeks ago. I'm going to be back in six days. I'll write two scripts when I'm gone to worry about it. It never really, it didn't help because our pipeline was so uh, in need all the time of, of attention and more material and just page count. And um, it was a machine. Well, it was, it was designed. The, the pipeline was designed to have, I think, two episodes or one episode being shot, one being edited, and one being finished and outputted. Obviously, when I arrived, not one episode had been finished yet, officially finished. So there were 19 episodes in the pipeline. Um, and at that point, we had 88 terabytes, which is in that time was like, you know, probably like the, you know, the biggest, uh, I think it was the biggest HD production and that much storage was insane. Now that's, that's yeah. not as much. Um, the, well, what I always, I think I told you this, you were the, the, the guy falling on the hand grenade for the whole production the entire time. And meaning <clears throat> creating the stories, <clears throat> translating what, you know, Magnus wanted to bring, adapt to Magnus coming in and saying, oh, this isn't what I pictured, you know, because he hadn't read the script yet because he was so busy doing everything he was doing and then sitting and talking it through with it. There were so many times that, excuse me, there were so many times that um, that production, I mean, when you left, that was a bad thing, you know, because that that security blanket was gone, um, you know, and they did not like for you to leave for sure. They did not like when I would leave. Uh, um, it got a little better when Silly started directing a little bit, you know, and, and we had me, Magnus, and Silly. But for a while there, it really was every day we were like landing on the beach at Normandy and what were we going to do and, and make, you know? Yeah. And when the network started getting uh, some stuff back and then they would have their thoughts and notes and. Yep. And uh, executives would come flying up from New York, and we'd have to stop everything. Do you remember? Were you there when the Princess of Sweden came for a visit? I, I, yes, and the president. The uh, the president sure, got to direct the president shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spike Jones. Um, Spike Jones. Michael Bolton came. Yeah. We had visits where we had to 
not only shut everything down for the duration, but we had to hurry up and sweep everything and come in nice clothes. Yeah. And sure. We were, and we had, we had a lot of good times too. We partied a lot. We, uh, we hit up the clubs. We had big uh, Magnus's 40th James Bond birthday party. Oh, awesome. I, uh, he, that was a great moment for Matt. I, I, you know, Magnus is, as we know, an incredible, incredible, uh, human being and personality. And I, I don't think I know anyone like Magnus. Um, but he, uh, I wanted the, you know, in Iceland, there's not a ton of everything. They have everything they need, but not much more than that. Right. So the tuxedos, I think we had every rented tuxedo that was in Iceland and I wanted the white shawl collar one, but that was what he was wearing as James Bond. And, and, and he was like, Oh, you're wearing that. And I realized, Oh, that's not cool. It's like wearing a wedding dress to a wedding. Right. Um, but then it arrived and Magnus was like here, you know, and he and I had the same tuxedo, you know, even though he was the 40th and the James Bond and he would do, he would do a lot of things like that. My other favorite as so many Magnus stories, but so the end of the first week I was there, Magnus goes, as he did to you a bunch of times, I'm sure, uh, I'm going to pick you up. And he would just pick me up and drive. Right. And we're just driving around Iceland. He's like, Oh, there's the KFC. I built that, you know, cause he was a carpenter <laughs> and we're driving around and we're driving through Reykjavik and I'm just talking with him. And I was like, so you're called the sports elf. And he's like, yeah. And he, I was like, like, why is that? He's like, well, you know, Iceland believes in elves and, and elves are these magical people. And I do all this athletic stuff. So people call me the sports elf. And as you found out, and I found out in Iceland, like there's invisible people, there's elves. And they really believe it. They genuinely believe it. Like Hannes, I went up one day and said, Hannes, do you believe in these invisible people? And he's like, ha, ha, ha. no, I mean, some people. But there is a part of my property that I don't touch because that's where the elves live. <laughs> And you're like, oh, this motorcycle Harley driving, like, you know, Viking really believes. And as I was sitting with Magnus in his Porsche, we were at a light. I was like, so people really think you're an elf. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, are you an elf? And there was just this weird silence. And it was totally like um, the Twilight Zone where he's like, want to see something really scary? And then Albert Brooks rips his face off. I was so like is he going to turn around right now and magically, you know, do something where I go, he, he is an elf. <laughs> but he, yeah, he had a lot of, a uh, lot of those kinds of secrets. There was a lot going on that we didn't know about at the time. Jonathan, thank you so much for giving your time. There's so much more that we can talk about. Maybe we'll pick it up again in a future date, but I know the fans will really, really love hearing this. Appreciate your time. I, I think of Lazy Town and Iceland very fondly, and I feel very blessed to have had so much time with you there, too. Um, so I will do this anytime you want. It's great talking to you, and I love talking Lazy Town. Thanks, Jonathan. And for all the fans out there, stay tuned to find out how you can take part in our online Instagram and Twitter polls. And be sure to check our Facebook account for updates on future guests, behind the scenes, photos, and latest fan fictions. We'll see you all next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Pod podcast. In future episodes, we'll go behind the scenes with stories about how the scripts were brainstormed and written, 
We'll talk with the actors and crew members, and we'll have special episodes on the songs, the action sequences, the sets and props, and the studio itself. Make sure you go to bed by 808, and remember, there's always a way. The Lazy Pod Podcast.